Jesus was depicting a money-loving religious Pharisee as unredeemed, and he would wake up upon the moment of death and find himself in eternal torment. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Was first-century Judaism completely grace-based or was it works-based? Why does it matter so much if a group known as the Pharisees were legalistic or not? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part five of his series titled Tradition. We're looking at the topic of legalism as discussed in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. But the account of Mark is not the only place we see legalism in the Bible. The Apostle Paul is clear about works-based righteousness and how it was that so many in the first century had come to embrace it. If you look at the teaching of Jesus, he could not be clearer about the nature of first century Judaism and what it had become. But the question is, how does first century legalism impact your life today? Let's find out as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. It is truly amazing how much something can change from its original nature. When I think about that, I specifically think of a number of American institutions that were begun for wonderful Christian purposes who now are bastions of liberalism and atheism and everything that can, you can imagine that is anti-God. Take Harvard, for example. Now, I know I'm not picking on one of our new members who graduated from there, but Harvard College was founded in 1636 by a small group of English Puritan ministers. It was their first school of higher learning in America, and the express purpose of these English Puritans was to train successors to pastor their churches. This is captured on a brick wall just outside the Johnston Gate at Harvard. Listen to what's there. After God had carried us safe to New England, and we had builded our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. So Harvard was begun to train a new generation of ministers of the gospel who would carry on the tradition. On September 26, 1642, Harvard published a pamphlet that sort of set forth the rules for all those students who would attend the institution. This is what it said. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Compare that amazing statement, really, with the current state of Harvard University. Perhaps the contrast can best be illustrated in the views of one of the campus chaplains at Harvard College, an Episcopal priest 
named Peter Gomes. Gomes, who also serves as the plumber professor of Christian morals at Harvard Divinity School, he's been preaching there at Harvard for nearly 30 years. This in spite of the fact that Gomes is openly gay and calls for, quote, tolerance of all sexuality as a gift from God. Gomes says, quote, I can handle a God who has room for me and room for thousands of other conceptions of religious faith of which I know nothing and which I cannot understand. I don't want God to conform to or be conformed to the limits of my mind and the limits of my tradition. That would not be a God. That would be an icon. In his 1996 best-selling book, The Good Book, Gomes makes an appeal for people to take the Bible seriously. That sounds like a good thing. But in the book, he states that, one, the doctrine of sola scriptura has created a temptation to make the Bible, quote, a domesticated substitute for the authority of God. I don't know exactly what that means. Two, he says the Bible is actually silent on the question of abortion. And three, quote, there is no credible case against homosexuality or homosexuals that can be made from the Bible unless one chooses to read Scripture in a way that simply sustains his existing prejudice. It's pretty clear, isn't it, that Harvard retains no vestige of what it once was. It has become certainly a wonderful institution of higher learning in terms of number of academic courses, study, but it has become something altogether different. What I want you to see is that is exactly the kind of radical change that had happened to Judaism. By the time of the first century, Judaism had very little left in common with what God himself had instituted at Sinai. It was a different animal. On the issue of authority, it had replaced God's authority, the Scripture alone, with human tradition. And on the issue of salvation, it had replaced sola fide and sola gratia, that is by faith alone, or, or through faith alone, by grace alone, with works righteousness. And so because it had become something so different, Christ confronts what it had become. And he does so in Mark chapter 7. And I invite you to turn there with me again tonight. Mark chapter 7. As Mark unfolds the account here, and we've been in it for a couple of weeks, you see first the external nature of legalism with all of the rules that have been made, including the washing of hands, the washing of pots and other vessels, the, the fact that you needed a bath when you came back from the market, just in case you'd been somehow touched by something unclean and rendered unclean. They had added and added to the law of God. And then you have Jesus' personal diagnosis of legalism in verses 6 through 13, and Jesus essentially says this, you have deliberately, willfully substituted your man-made rules for God's eternal word. And then he gives them an example of how their oral tradition had actually annulled God's commands. The illustration, you remember, had to do with parents and caring for aging parents. The Pharisees, by their tradition, had circumvented God's command to honor their parents. What Jesus says in verses 6 through 13, and I introduced this to you a couple of weeks ago, is more than a simple chastisement. Jesus isn't slapping their 
hands, so to speak. He isn't wrapping their knuckles. Jesus is instead rendering a verdict about what first century Judaism had become. And essentially, first century Judaism had compromised on a couple of things. It had become completely worthless. It had become corrupt. It had even ceased to be the true faith in the true God altogether. It had become instead a false religion. Why? Well, the two reasons you see here. Jesus identifies both of them in this text. One is it had substituted its source of authority. Instead of the Word of God, it had bought into oral tradition and the teachings of men. And it had substituted works righteousness. That is, what I do and who I am earns my right standing before God rather than the righteousness of God given to me as a gift, received by faith. Those were the two compromises they had made. First of all, the source of authority. By the time of the first century, the Jews had been orally passing down this teaching and interpretation of the rabbis for at least a couple of hundred years, and we talked about that. The Talmud, made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara, who interpreted the interpretations. They believed that oral tradition was as important as the Torah itself. But the other reason, and the one I want to dwell on tonight, why first century Judaism had become worthless is because of how it abused the truth of how a man is right, made right with God, the way of salvation. Judaism had replaced salvation by grace alone through faith alone with salvation by grace plus personal righteousness. There's certainly no doubt that's true today. I mentioned in our last study together the work of Herm, Herman Wouk, who wrote a book called This Is My God, a bestseller intended to communicate what modern-day Judaism believes. In that book, this is what he says. In Judaism, this is today now, in Judaism, right conduct is the path to God. This path lies open to Jews and non-Jews. Judaism has never tried to save souls by converting them. It teaches that salvation lies in people's conduct before God, not in their taking on the special commands that bind the house of Abraham. So what am I as a non Jewish person to do? Well, I need to keep the law of the sons of Noah, which demands seven concepts. The worship of God, no murder, no theft, no incest or sexual aberrations, no eating the limb of the living, that is cruelty to animals, the ban on blasphemy, and justice, the establishment of courts, judges, and a system of equality and equity. Basically, if you do that, Luke says, Nations and persons that live by these precepts are, in the Talmud's phrase, the righteous of the world. Do these things, and you will be counted righteous before God. Now, most of us have always heard and been taught that that same works-based righteousness was what characterized Judaism in the time of Christ. But there are significant voices in evangelicalism today that have an agenda to deny that. Now, I'm going to take a moment to develop this, because if you haven't heard of this, you will. I've had probably a half a dozen people in our church ask me about what I'm about to explain. So this is beginning to 
filter down from the ivory towers, which is where it started back in the 70s, and now it has found its way into mainstream popular Christianity. The argument goes something like this. Since the Reformation, we have misunderstood what Paul and Jesus were attacking in the first century and in first century Judaism. They say, you know, the scribes and Pharisees, they didn't teach a works-based salvation. You've misread them. That isn't it at all. Instead, they believed in grace just like we do. And our misunderstanding of the problem has caused us to misunderstand the whole New Testament concept of justification. We've gotten it all wrong. This new teaching is often referred to as the new perspective or the new perspective on Paul. Now, again, just to give you a brief overview of the history, I'm not going to belabor this, but I want you to know where this came from. It started with a man named E.P. Sanders. E.P. Sanders was born and grew up in Grand Prairie. He attended Wesleyan College in Fort Worth, as well as Perkins School of Theology at SMU. And then he studied in a few other places, eventually got his Ph.D. at Union Theological up in New York, and for many years he was the professor of religion at Duke University in North Carolina from 1990 until he retired in 2005. Sanders wrote several works that laid the foundation for this new perspective on Paul. So he's kind of the grandfather. But the one who has brought it down from the ivory towers, most of E.P. Sanders' original stuff was written you know, as much as 30 years ago. The one who's brought it down from the ivory tower, who has a more popular voice, the biblical scholar who's made this view popular is a man named N.T. Wright, or you'll sometimes see in his more uh, layman-type books, he's called Tom Wright, but N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is the Bishop of Durham in the Church of England, and he is a leading New Testament scholar. He is certainly a scholar. There's no question about that. But N.T. Wright likes all things new. He likes to look at the Bible and come up with fresh approaches to the Bible by his own admission. He's written several books defending his view. It's a very difficult view to understand because he couches it and uses terms we use with different meanings. The best summary, if you want to read a little more on this, and I know many of you won't, but some of you might, would be to pick up John Piper's new book called The Future of Justification. In Piper's new book, he, first of all, accurately represents Wright's views. In fact, he sent a manuscript to Wright, and Wright sent him back, I forget, an, a large volume of material saying, no, this is it, this is it, this is it, correcting what Piper had written, and Piper incorporated those into the final manuscript. So there's no question but what he's accurately representing in T. Wright. And then Piper summarizes what Wright teaches about justification. Here's the summary of what Wright teaches, and I'll give it to you in short bullet points. And they're frankly shocking. In the book, Piper substantiates each of these with a number of quotes from N.T. Wright. So this isn't made up. This isn't fabricated. He's not creating a straw man. This is what Wright believes. First of all, he would say that the gospel is not about how to get saved. We've gotten that all wrong. It's not about personal salvation. Secondly, he would say justification is not about how you become a Christian. Thirdly, justification is not the gospel. 
Fourth, he would say, we are not justified by believing in justification. Fifthly, he says, God's righteousness is the same as his covenant faithfulness. In other words, when we're, said, when we're told that God is righteous and he communicates that righteousness, it just means he's faithful. That's all it means. It has nothing to do with a courtroom, God declaring the believing sinner to be just. All of that's wrong because we've misunderstood the definition. Sixth, he says, the imputation of God's own righteousness to the sinner, that's what we describe as justification. My sins imputed to Christ on the cross. God treats Christ as if he'd lived my life. Christ's righteousness imputed to me. He says that makes no sense at all. Seven, he says future justification. When I am in the future justified before God, it will be on the basis of the complete life lived. That is, I will be justified. I'll be declared righteous before God based on the life I lived. That is, by my own effort by my own work. And then here's the foundation of all of this. This is where E.P. Sanders started. The eighth part of his view is this. First century Judaism had nothing of the alleged self-righteousness and legalism that we have made it mean. That's really the foundation of all of this. We misread the New Testament. We have taken a wonderful, grace-loving group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, and we've made them the devil itself, himself. And that's our mistake. So that is what the whole thing is based upon. Wright says that in Galatians, Paul was not confronting legalistic works, works righteousness. So what was he confronting? Listen to Wright in his own words. He says, Judaism in Paul's day was not, as has regularly been supposed, a religion of legalistic works righteousness. If we imagine that it was and that Paul was attacking it as if it was, we will do great violence to it and to him. The Jew in the New Testament keeps the law out of gratitude as the proper response to grace. Not, in other words, in order to get into the covenant people, but to stay in. Being in, in the first place, was God's gift. So what are the works that Paul damns in Galatians? Well, that raises an important question. Here's how Piper summarizes Wright's view. Paul's problem was not that these Jewish people, remember the Judaizers in Galatians, were trying to earn God's favor by their own self-wrought righteousness, but rather that they failed to see their calling to reach the nations and instead use their badge, that is the badge of their relationship to God, to exclude Gentiles from the covenant. What does that mean? It means that the Judaizers' problem wasn't that they were trying to earn their way to heaven. It was that they were too ethnocentric. I'm not making that up. They were too ethnocentric. They were too into their Jewishness. Now, why do I take the time to share this with you? Because this radical reinterpretation of the New Testament is permeating American Christianity. That includes the Bible faculty at some leading evangelical Christian colleges and universities whose names you would recognize. Even locally, the faculty of a local Christian high school has been enamored with N.T. Wright. So the key question I want us to answer, because it's really raised in the text of, of Mark 7, is this. Does the New Testament support the foundation of Wright's view? Was first century Judaism completely grace-based and their only problem, 
The only problem Jesus and Paul had with them was they were too ethnocentric. They were too Jewish, excluding the Gentiles. Was that really the issue? I want us to look at the evidence. And I want us to look at the evidence, not only to answer N.T. Wright, but I want you to hear Jesus. Because Jesus is passing judgment on false religion in this passage. And I want you to see his thought about it. First of all, we'll start with Paul. Does Paul believe that the Pharisees of the first century were these wonderful, grace-loving people who just were too into their Jewishness? Well, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Don't forget that. Philippians 3, he says he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was one of the more fastidious ones. How did he describe his own religion before he met Christ on the Damascus Road? Turn over to Romans chapter 7. Here's Paul writing to the Romans, describing his life before the Damascus Road. Romans 7, verse 7. You tell me, does this sound like someone who understood grace, had embraced it, and was loving God? Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, Paul thought he was fine. He thought he kept all the external law well. But when he got to number 10, there was a problem. He could say, I've never murdered anybody. I've never done this. I've never done that. I've never stolen anything. But when he got to number 10, he realized that God's law wasn't just about the outside. It was about the inside. You shall not covet. And then he realized that meant all of the other commands were internal, as Jesus interpreted them in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, as a result of that, verse 8, sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind because the law only awakens the flesh. How many times have you said to your children, don't do that, and then they want to know what it is they're not supposed to touch so they can touch it? That's how the law works, and that's what it did to Paul. When the commandment came, sin became alive, verse 9, and I died And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now you tell me, does that sound like someone who was spiritually alive? Who was living by grace? This is Paul's description of himself before he came to Christ. Now you have to interpret chapter 10 of Romans in light of that. Chapter 10, verse 1, he says... I want to see my Jewish brothers come to faith in Christ. They have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with the true knowledge of God. Not knowing about God's righteousness, they are seeking to establish their own, just like I was, as implied. And because of that, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Again, what's his verdict of his state as a Pharisee before he met Christ on the Damascus Road? Ephesians 2, we looked at when we went through there. Remember how he includes himself? You were dead, he says initially. And then he says, among them, we too all formerly lived. We, myself included. Before Christ, I lived in the lust of my flesh. I indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I was by nature a child of wrath, even as the rest. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
That's Paul's verdict on his pre-Damascus road life as a Pharisee. 1 Timothy 1.13, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, we, again, includes himself with the, the people he's writing to, to Titus, his young son in the faith, and the others there in Crete who would read this letter. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, Tradition. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.